Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Make sure you head on over to the website. It's TravelingCulturati.com. And uh, we want you to do so many things when you're there, <laughs> like connect with us on social media and join that travel club. Now in the second week of Black History Month and in our theme of traveling while black to the future, we're going to have a very thought-provoking conversation today about tourism and gentrification. Yes, that is a thing. What impact does tourism have on communities? How tourism can gentrify and change the landscape of a community and what tourists and communities can do for a more inclusive and diverse experience. Aristotle Teresa, a civil rights attorney focusing on zoning and administrative law, who's the principal partner of Stoop Law, which is located in the Anacostia neighborhood of Southeast Washington, D.C., and Sonia Greer, Ph.D., professor of marketing at the Kogut School of Business at American University and co-editor of Race in the Marketplace, Crossing Critical Boundaries, are my guests. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute and the Culture Report. But right now, let's get into a little travel news. Delta Airlines is extending its seat blocking policy, adding another month until April 2021. Now, they've just announced this extension to its industry-leading seat-blocking policy. And I say industry-leading because they are the standalone carrier at this time that is still doing it. They are blocking the middle seat, which includes blocking adjacent seats in first class on domestic U.S. flights, blocking the middle seat on all flights in Economy, Comfort Plus, and Premium Select, blocking one aisle of its seats on regional jets that have the 2-2 configuration. And that means that 25% of those seats are blocked. And they're capping the maximum capacity and economy at 75%. And when parties of three or more are traveling together in economy, an entire row can be selected when two parties or more are traveling in first class, adjacent seats can be selected. Now, Delta's seat blocking policy really is the best at this time in the industry. Delta One used to be limited at almost 60% of capacity, but for planes with two aisles, there won't be a capacity restriction and regional jets in 2-2 configuration used to be capped at 50% of capacity at most as the aisle and window seats were blocked and now they're capped at 75% capacity. So yes, while they are the best in the industry, they did have some restrictions and they're certainly outdoing their competitors. Southwest stopped blocking seats as of December 1, JetBlue stopped blocking seats as of January 7th, and Alaska Air stopped blocking seats as of January 7th as well. United and American Airlines have also stopped blocking middle seats. And I suspect that April will probably be the last extension 
So certainly if you're interested, you're traveling between now and the end of April, you can expect to see it. But beyond that, I don't really think they will do it beyond April 30th. Another change is with Lufthansa. They're cutting their first class on all U.S. routes until May 2021. They haven't been offering their first class product to the U.S. since November 2020, and they've extended that a few more weeks. That means that they will not be operating their Boeing 747-8 for Chicago and Los Angeles. In October, they revealed plans to cut this even further between November and March 27th. And again, that's going to be extended until May of 2021 on their flights between Frankfurt and Chicago and Frankfurt and Los Angeles. And these two U.S. routes were operated on Boeing 747-8s over the winter, and they were replaced by Airbus 350-900s. And this swap will be extended until April 30, 2021, and then no first class through maybe May. But as of now, May 1st, we may see a resumption of those flights. And certainly they've taken this measure because of the mutual ban or for most travelers from the European Union and also just the overall reduction in flights and everyone's really looking toward people being vaccinated and considering that that will revamp travel and continue to see travel numbers increase during the summer as more people get vaccinated. Now this story here, I came across in an article in Atlas Obscura, and it's on an Iowa architect, Joby Hill, who documented every slave house still standing, and she has visited 700 former residences, many of which have been abandoned. Some have become storage spaces, and others have become B&Bs, bed and breakfasts. Now, Hill came up with the idea for saving slave houses in 2012 while she was researching her master's thesis in preservation architecture. She was a summer intern at the Historic American Buildings Survey, otherwise known as HABS, HABS, a federal program established in 1933 to employ architects and draftsmen who had been laid off during the Great Depression. The survey's stated purpose was to document the architectural features of historically significant buildings in the United States, but it also recorded 485 slave houses that remained standing across the antebellum South in the 1930s and 40s. It's the closest thing to a national survey of slave houses that we have, according to Hill. The HABS survey required that each site be documented with a combination of interior and exterior photographs, precise floor plans and blueprints, and any relevant history of how the building was used in the past. Now, Hill realized that this high level of documentation was a prerequisite only for the main houses on plantations, but it was rarely present for slave houses. Those structures were often included in the survey unintentionally. And a quote by Hill, I would see a slave house in the background of the picture of the main house because they couldn't crop it out. Slave houses were rarely labeled as such, but Hill found it easy to pick them out from the surveys by observing their small size and location. 
And if the building has a fireplace or a chimney, that meant it was used as a living quarter because enslaved people often lived in the kitchens where they worked. The architecture of these buildings varies from one-room cabins to dormitory-style housing. But the majority of the slave houses documented by Habs were built as notched log cabins with gaps patched with mud or left to open air. So Hill is extending her search and discovery and documenting every slave house still standing. And as we can see from just the notes of some of her work, it is a daunting task and it's very interesting. I'm gonna try and see if I can get her on the show. I would love to find out much more about what she has uncovered. Another wonderful art exhibit has just opened in Bozeman, Montana. And it's called, We Are Still Here and This Is Our Story. It's a group exhibit that honors and advocates for missing and murdered indigenous people. It opened at the Emerson Center for the Arts and Culture in Bozeman. The exhibit features contemporary art, beadwork, and fashion design from 11 native women artists. It'll be open through February 28. 10 of the featured artists are women from Montana. Native Americans make up 6.7% of Montana's population, but they comprise on average of 26% of the state's active missing persons population. Susan Denson Guy, executive director of the Emerson said the Arts Center has always aimed to be accessible and welcoming to everyone, but given the events of 2020, we realized we need to do better. We have a platform with a fairly broad reach and realized we could use it to advance voices of artists of all cultures so everyone's voice has a place to be heard. Artist Susan Stewart said that for her, the exhibit's topic hits home. Her grandniece was killed two years ago, and Stewart said she and her family were disappointed with law enforcement's response. Stewart, who is Crow, contributed two art pieces to the exhibit, one of which, Ka'ala's Tears, symbolizes her grief. Artist Adela Big Hair Stump said her work is the product of when cultures meet fashion. She has two dresses in the Emerson's exhibit. One dress is red with 28 feathers to represent the number of missing indigenous persons in Bighorn County at the time she made it. The other is a ribbon skirt with four lines to represent the four directions and three faces of native girls to represent sisterhood. Big Hair Stump, who is Crow, said she hopes the exhibit brings awareness of the missing and murdered indigenous people's epidemic to non-native communities. Wuzek Chandler, who has been beating since the third grade, said she wanted to create art to honor not only missing and murdered indigenous victims, but also their families. As a young woman, Chandler said the exhibit is particularly important to her. I have been in a situation where I feared for my life and could have been a missing or murdered woman, adding that she does not seek pity in her statement. I hope the exhibit makes people realize the urgency of protecting indigenous people and to inspire them to look into individual missing and murdered cases. Salisha Oldborn, who is Salish and Crow, said she was inspired by the exhibit's focus on resilience and identity. And Old Bull's piece, Indigenous Hillshade, is a place-based abstract painting that demonstrates Native people's connection to the land. Old Bull said that the piece was inspired by old pictographs found in caves. 
The Emerson Center for the Arts and Culture will offer multiple opportunities for online tours of the exhibit and plans to host a panel discussion about missing and murdered indigenous people. Let's leave things on a positive note or something fun. Take out food. What is the world ordering? <laughs> well, the number one item ordered for takeout around the world is pizza. 44 countries have pizza as their number one choice or most ordered takeout. Chinese comes in number two with 29 countries as a favorite of having Chinese food as takeout. 10 countries have sushi as their favorite takeout, fish and chips, their six countries. And fried chicken, five countries have that as takeout. This article was published in the Daily Mail. And if you're wondering about North America, well, in North America, the Americas, Mexico, the number one search was Chinese, while fish and chips were the top requested items in Canada, St. Lucia, and Granada. In South America, it was pizza and Chinese and sushi. Sushi was really big in Brazil, but there's a very large Japanese population in Brazil as well. In India, the number one takeout was Korean food. And eighth and leading the way in two countries is Thai food. And that has a lot to do with Malaysian countries as well. In Africa, pizza is the number one takeout or fish and chips and Egyptians can't get enough of pizza, and sushi is the top in Mozambique. In South Africa, the most searched takeout food is fish and chips. So what's your favorite takeout? Pizza would probably be the most ordered item that I have in my home when I do takeout. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. Now, Black History Month 2021 has posed a few logistical challenges with celebrations in person, with loved ones, and physical activities due to COVID-19. But it doesn't mean you can't celebrate and honor the month. I've curated a list of ways you can celebrate and honor the month this year. One is virtual events. Many museums have launched virtual events and programs and tours of the museum. So you can check that out. Go to the museum's website and look up their virtual events. You can support black businesses. Now there's no better time than now to support a black owned business. One, it's Black History Month. And there should be a concerted effort to celebrate and honor the month. And it's estimated that 40% of Black-owned businesses have closed between February and April of 2020, twice the decline by white-owned businesses. And you have Valentine's Day coming up. You want to support Black-owned restaurants. If you're uncomfortable with dining in, you can take out. And if you need help with finding Black-owned restaurants, get the Eat Okra app. It's a guide that's specifically designed for Black-owned restaurants. And we had the owner on our show last week, so you want to check that out. And in Chicago, it's Black Restaurant Week. You can get a reservation or order, but make sure you do it early. Restaurants have reduced capacity during this time. 
And to enhance your at-home experience, shop black. Look for black-owned or produced wines, like one of my favorites, the Brown Estate Wines in Napa. You can get them at many of your wine shops and stores. I especially like their Zinfandel and their Shiraz. They have a new label called Chaos. I haven't tried that one yet, but I understand it is delicious. You can donate. Donate because causes and organizations that benefit black communities are in great need. There's a list of causes and organizations you can search and find, especially one that speaks to you. That being said, museums can always use donations. Museum donations typically come with a membership of varying levels. Donate Bone Marrow. Be the Match Foundation is in dire need of African-American bone marrow donors to help sustain life for people facing blood cancers and disorders like sickle cell disease. And start planning your itinerary now for the future to include black history sites. They need interest, they need visitors, and they need donations to survive. Next week, I'm gonna have on Deborah Douglas, who curated a U.S. civil rights trail in a guidebook that is very complete with planning tools, personal experiences, and general tourism. It's the U.S. Civil Rights Trail, a traveler's guide to the people, places, and events that made the movement. So again, make sure you tune in next week, but also check out the book and guide. And if you're visiting a site, make sure you check their website for closures, operating hours, COVID protocols, and reservation requirements. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. You can get the full Travel Minute with links for more information at TravelingCulturati.com. Well, today I'm chatting with Aristotle Teresa, a civil rights attorney focusing on zoning and administrative law, and Sonia Greer, PhD and professor of marketing at the Kogut School of Business, American University, and co-editor of race in the marketplace crossing critical boundaries. We're talking about tourism and gentrification. What impact does it have on communities? How tourism can gentrify and change the landscape of a community and what tourists and communities can do for a more inclusive and diverse experience. And you may be thinking, what does gentrification have to do with tourism? Well, we're gonna shed some light on that for you. So whether you look at it as having a negative or positive impact on a community, we know it definitely has an impact. But how does tourism factor in to gentrification? And chatting with me today to help us out with the conversation is Aristotle Teresa, a civil rights attorney focusing on zoning and administrative law. He is a principal partner of Stoop Law, which is located in the Anacostia neighborhood of Southeast Washington, D.C. And Mr. Teresa is a fourth generation D.C. resident. He's a double HBCU graduate, graduating from Howard University School of Law in 2010 and Clark Atlanta University in 2003. Well, hello, Mr. Teresa, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hi, thanks for having me. It's absolutely my pleasure. Now, we talk about gentrification, but I really want to give that true definition of what gentrification is, because we may have a preconceived notion of what it is and may be wrong. So what does gentrification really mean? Well, I think if you would ask different people, you'd get different answers. So 
from academics, I think it's widely accepted that gentrification is just when an area's income increases, the income levels of the people in an area increase. Through my practice, I've come to see gentrification more as development that occurs in a neighborhood that does not serve existing residents and maybe serves like a potential future resident. And uh, a lot of times that's the mechanism where incomes increase rather than like people kind of growing with the neighborhood and, you know, as the neighborhood's fortunes improve, their fortunes improve, it's almost like a different population replacing the population that was there prior. What are the different types of gentrification? There's a gentrification where, you know, it kind of happens organically where like maybe a community of people, I can't imagine modern examples of this, but you know, I would think that like Black Wall Street is an example of a kind of gentrification since it's Black History Month. I think that that's one example. But then there's another example, I think, where, you know, the government kind of imposes it and looks at a community as an expense and tries to change that community very quickly And it's not something that happens organically. So I would say that there's, you know, the kind of gentrification that happens that kind of organically develops based on relationships from people within the community and their ambitions and and what they're able to do together. And then a kind of gentrification that occurs where it's a government policy to gentrify a neighborhood. Retail, I would imagine, would change. And then how does one then afford to even exist within that same space with just some of the day-to-day things and purchases and needs that a community would have, like grocery stores or convenience stores or even clothing stores and things of that nature. Exactly. It's almost like a new economy gets dropped in where there was, you know, an existing economy before. Now a new one comes in and it does create situations where people cannot you know, really afford to be participants in their communities. Spaces that were familiar become unfamiliar. Places that, you know, you could go for like a reliable cheap meal disappear. Gathering spots disappear. So there's like a, a economic, social, cultural aspect to what happens when a neighborhood gentrifies. Yeah, that socio-spatial kind of change. And I think that's really where you see those two worlds collide and that impact increase when you're talking about gentrification and tourism because you know sometimes with tourism while the residents may not change because of the amount of tourism or visitors you have to a destination then the local spaces adapt to that and it becomes really a space for the tourist and not for the residents and so it kind of displaces them in that way So how can communities work with gentrification, especially it is that socio-spatial change with tourism gentrification? I think that tourism contributes to gentrification. I know in my neighborhood, we have a lot of Airbnbs. So like the two houses on either side of my house are both Airbnbs right now. And when I first moved into the community, these were homes that housed families. And it was like affordable housing for people and families and residents, and now they're Airbnbs. So, yeah, I think that one could say, well, how do you work with it? There are people who live in their homes in my community who also Airbnb, 
and so like I'd say that that's kind of working with it a little bit. So, you know, it's not just the Airbnb home, it's also their residence. Airbnb, that's a very interesting thing because that is something that now gives an economic opportunity, especially growth, so that that's a part where they're not left out of that economic growth. I do a lot of tours to South Africa, for example, And especially when we do township tours or informal settlement tours, it is that the tourists are descending upon these destinations. And you look at it in two ways. How are they affected on a permanent basis? How does it affect their permanent space? But also as a tourist, you know, what should we look to and understand when we're in that space? I don't think as tourists, we even think of it as gentrification in any way. One of the things I wanted to talk about was gentrification and its effect on black history and historical sites. Because one of the things I know, for example, the U Street Corridor and how much that has changed in Washington, D.C. And there are some very historic sites there, like the African-American Civil War Memorial and the Frederick Douglass Home. One that comes to mind for me is Berry Farm, which is a public housing complex which was demolished and had its residents dispersed. But since that's happened, they've been like fighting to give it a historic designation. I think they did get the historic designation. But I think that a lot of that stuff ends up contributing to gentrification because it becomes a marketing tool, the history of an area. If you were to go to U Street, like a lot of the restaurants and lounges over there are named after black people who, you know, are historically affiliated with the area. And, you know, it just becomes kind of marketing tool, I think, under gentrification. Well, it's interesting. I didn't realize they had designated Berry Farms as a historic site. And this is Sirius XM, so people listen all across the country. So let's give them a little background on Berry Farms. Yeah, Berry Farm is a public housing complex that at one time housed 440 families, probably 100% of them were black, give or take a percent. Set for rezoning, they wanted to rezone it and change it into a mixed income community, and they're still working on that. They don't have the approvals for that yet. But they did displace all the residents, so all the residents are displaced. So between when the residents were displaced and you know them still fighting to get the approvals to do the mixed income development, made a portion of the site historic because there were people who were part of the civil rights movement who used to live in Berry Farm. You know, there's an important school desegregation case that took place. The student who was a part of that case lived in Berry Farm, and so they designated a part of that area as historic. Yeah, and who it's named after, because I think that's important, too. The mayor at the time of Washington, D.C., can be looked at as famous and infamous. Mayor Marion Barry of Washington, D.C., and certainly he did a lot of great things for the city that was really tarnished when he crossed over into infamy with the incidents that occurred. And maybe later in his term, I'm not talking about the latter terms, but that time, maybe he became a different mayor. But in the beginning, um, you know, he developed places like Barry Farms. He 
established the summer youth program and provided a lot of opportunity for inner city youth. So there were a lot of great things that he did. So the city was very much divided on whether or not you loved or hated Marion Barry and whether or not you saw him as this pillar in the community or somebody who went down in infamy. There's a great divide with that. But Barry Farms certainly was one of his major accomplishments. And so to see that go away, but also to see that now they're looking at it as a historic landmark, I think is very interesting. Aristotle Ari Teresa is a civil rights attorney focusing on zoning and administrative law. Thanks for having me. Travel and consumerism go hand in hand, and understanding this can make us not only better travelers, but more conscious consumers when we travel. And it can give us an understanding of how our ideals and concepts impact other communities. I'm chatting with Sonia Greer, PhD, Professor of Marketing at the Kogod School of Business, American University, and co-editor of Race in the Marketplace, Crossing Critical Boundaries. Well, hello, Sonia, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Thank you so much for having me. It is certainly my pleasure, and as a traveler, I try to... What is the old saying, uh, leave only footprints, take only memories? And I think we should be more conscious travelers and understanding how we impact communities. So I want to thank you so much for delving into this topic and doing the research that you have on such a topic, because we don't often connect those dots. It's very creative and very interesting topic to connect travel and gentrification. Absolutely. So you did some research on faux diversity and consumption in gentrifying neighborhoods. What inspired you to do this research? So my colleague, Vanessa Perry, and she's a marketing professor at George Washington University, and I, we go out to listen to house music all the time. And we were walking down U Street. One of the places we go is U Street Music Hall. And U Street is a really busy, popular, gentrifying neighborhood that has bars, restaurants, and nightlife. So we're walking down late one Saturday night, and we noticed how many different groups of people there were. There were hipsters, there were older people, younger people, white, black, Asian, all kinds of races and ethnicities, but no one really seemed to be interacting with each other. So this really led us to start talking about some work I had done on diversity seeking, which talked about how people like to proactively find interest in other cultures along with Vanessa's work on housing, which shows that that's not always the case. People kind of resist this diversity. So we wanted to come together and really look at gentrification in the neighborhoods and how that related to consumption. Because gentrification is not just about people coming in. There's also a symbolic aspect of gentrification in terms of these new spaces and services that are created that are aimed at attracting this new market. So we decided to do some research on these. And I find that fascinating because I'm from Washington, D.C., and I remember the U Street corridor before it was gentrified. And even for us, it was a neighborhood that wasn't often frequented. So when I go back today and visit, it is a little startling to see the differences. But I also recognize things like this in international settings. For example, last year I went to Ethiopia and they do these cultural village tours. And what struck me 
was because in this particular instance, it was a mixed group of travelers and travel professionals versus my predominantly African-American groups that I travel with. And I just saw a difference in how we occupied that space and how we interacted with the locals and visiting their village and being up close and personal with them in that it was just like, we're here to see you (laughs) and not to really interact. So I can see it in both settings and how it could certainly impact. Now, on your piece, dog parks and coffee shops, faux diversity and consumption and gentrifying neighborhoods, what incidents did you uncover in this research? So what we found is that residents start to experience these changes in consumption opportunities along with the diversity. So while Gentrification does increase the diversity in these neighborhoods. It happens in a superficial way, and that way is often through these changes in consumption opportunities. We get types of stores and coffee shops and dog parks that are targeted towards the newcomers as opposed to those that might be targeted towards the needs and desires of the people who already live there. You know, we created a film that goes along with this, and someone in the film says, you know, we get new coffee shops and dog parks, but we might just want better bus service or something else. So this whole notion of the goods and services being designed to appeal to the more affluent newcomers is also reinforced by this lack of social interaction between the groups. And this is, full diversity is a term we coined to describe this presence of diverse groups with limited to no interaction between them. And this full diversity can lead to tensions and mistrust, as well as uneven access to resources and uneven access to political representation, even in these neighborhoods. So there's a lot of potential impact of the changing space in particular neighborhoods. With your statement of what one of the community members said, that we need better bus service, but we are getting dog parks and more coffee shops, is really catering to the visitor and not the resident. And I can certainly see how that would make tensions rise. Most definitely. And in some cases, many of the longstanding residents end up leaving these neighborhoods. And so what that does is erode the diversity and the sense of community that might have already been there. And this also puts up a barrier to the kind of cross-racial and cross-cultural harmony that policymakers and local governments and residents want in their communities. I was going to ask, how did these incidents impact the communities? And I think we've kind of answered that. But are there any specifics as far as this particular community and the film that you did that had some outcomes? I think it's an ongoing process. One of the things, for example, that always kind of tickled me was a campaign on Say Hi to Your Neighbors. And that is something that was going on and is still going on as there are attempts to try to find ways to bring people together. And I think, you know, now that we have the consciousness of these tensions that exist in terms of diversity being present but not really being fulfilled in terms of inclusion, that now we know that the next step is really to identify ways to bring people together and create those interactions that will support a stronger community as well as not lead to displacement of particular individuals. And it's a very powerful but simple gesture to say hi to your neighbor, kind of erasing those invisible lines that people don't cross, I think. But it's, you know, it's interesting. I showed the film in my class and we talk about it, and some of the students were saying, how do you know you're supposed to say hi to your neighbors? Hmm. Now that really struck me that everyone is not raised the same way, You know, that's something I thought was just common, and apparently it's not. So we have to think about these 
race differences, and perhaps that's where those types of campaigns really can be effective at raising awareness and hopefully changing behavior. Yeah, and I think to that point, it kind of speaks to a generational thing, because I certainly came up with, you speak to your neighbor, I remember taking a road trip to Texas from Washington, D.C. for our family reunion, and along the way, we drove through neighborhoods, and Black folks just spoke and would ask where you headed and would offer you a beverage or something like that. (laughs) So, but of course we're talking about the seventies. So I think that's a generational difference as well. And then I know this is a completely different subject. It's like, why haven't we passed that on? (laughs) Which is very interesting. And then of course, when you have neighbors that don't look like you. I find that it does happen in places, typically overseas. (laughs) And I don't know if it's a safety concern or what, but that is exactly what we need to get back to. When I read the headline, I almost thought that the dog parks part was referencing the issue that I read in the news. I think it was last year or the year before with people walking their dogs at Howard University in the quad, which was another issue, but speaks to the same subject. How people use space. Yeah. And, you know, space tends to get racialized. So we talked about some of the impact that people found in our... One of the things is that people would say, that place does not target me. That place does not want my business. Because they believe that it was only focused on certain other people. And only servicing their needs. And I remember thinking at the time, reading the article, because not one of the newcomers to the neighborhood even mentioned in any of the interviews that this is a historically black college and I'm descending upon their space. So I thought that part was very interesting, but I see now that dog parks and coffee shops wasn't referencing that, but it certainly could have. Now, bringing it back to the topic of a traveler, because again, we're often in these spaces and there is tourism gentrification. So I think as a traveler, we don't often think in those terms of impact when we visit neighborhoods. So what are the ways in which visitors can impact a community? Yeah, I think visitors can impact the neighborhood in a variety of ways, ranging from positive to neutral or negative. So from a positive perspective, visitors bring money into a neighborhood. Their presence can also support new or existing jobs in the local economy, such as bringing in new restaurants and they go and support the food and culture of the area, they can help to generate income that's going to keep these restaurants and other establishments thriving. The impact is also reciprocal as visitors gain an understanding of something that comes from a neighborhood. And there's also the collective self-esteem that the neighborhood gets from having it viewed as a tourist resource. But at the same time, in gentrifying neighborhoods, there's already a change that's going on in terms of the demographics that influences the change in the stores and that may indirectly lead to displacement. It's these changing flows of capital into the area that are directed in certain ways, combined with the growth of tourism, also helps to just reinforce the process and the effects of gentrification. So if tourists focus only on these new opportunities and the new places, the shiny objects that are in an area, as opposed to the places that may have been there for a while, they may indirectly contribute to the process of displacement. I see. Now, how can travelers then be more aware of that impact when they're visiting neighborhoods? I think one thing, and this came out clearly in our film in the interviews, is that people don't take time to learn the history. 
people would say, I want to be in Washington, D.C., and there's all these things that have happened over time, but they don't necessarily learn the history of these neighborhoods. And learning the history gives you that opportunity to seek out both original as well as new places to visit. And it gives that consciousness that might say, you know, maybe I'm going to go work with this community organization to do a tour around a particular interest area that I have as opposed to, you know, going with the mainstream travel agency that may take me and show me certain things and there's no interaction with people. And it leads to what you said you observed other places where you feel like you're just sort of looking at people. Bingo. And that is so important. And thank you so much for saying that because that happens a lot. And I will tell you that I make a concerted effort to use local guides wherever I go. For example, I do programs to South Africa. And when we do Soweto tours or Walk to Freedom tours, I make sure that we use people who lived it, who breathe it every day and are from the community. Not only do you get a better understanding and a better overall experience, but the neighborhood I do find is more welcoming when you do that because they know that person. You can leave something behind as well. It seems, you know, beyond footprints, (laughs) there's also this this notion of maybe something that you've learned in your interactions with the community. And in terms of you learning and taking something away, you can also find ways to leave things behind that are positive. Absolutely. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. The website, TravelingCulturati.com. Go on over there and check it out. And while you're there, follow us on social media and join that travel club. Yes, we will be reigniting travel again very soon. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born from the arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report, and we're continuing our conversation on tourism gentrification and its effects on black communities with Sonia Greer, Ph.D., professor of marketing at the Kogod School of Business at American University and co-editor of Race in the Marketplace, Crossing Critical Boundaries. Now, Race in the Marketplace, which also gives breath to commercial gentrification, I wanted to broach the subject to give some food for thought to our travel audience for when they travel domestically and abroad. Sonia, welcome back. And thank you you so much for staying with me. Race in the Marketplace, Crossing Critical Boundaries. What was the stimulus for writing that piece? Almost six years ago, I was talking with two of my colleagues, Guillaume Johnson and Kevin Thomas, about our individual experiences at different marketing conferences. I think we had all just come from different conferences, and, you know, we sort of say, how many presentations were about race? None, one, one. And we were bemoaning just the lack of race-related research done by academic marketing researchers. But we saw that there was more innovative and interesting work that was being done in other fields like public health or public policy or the social sciences. In these fields, researchers would make race a focal construct and think about how race impacts the functioning of those markets, whether it was commercial, educational, 
health or something else. In fact, a lot of my own work is published in public health journals for this reason, because the way they looked and thought about race was just really different. So rather than reinvent the wheel, we decided to start an organization that would have a space for people to focus on race-related research. We would build on the cross-disciplinary work that already existed across other fields and focus specifically on race and markets. So in our vision, RIM, which stands for Race in the Marketplace, integrates learning from across diverse research domains and serves as a space where people who are interested in race-related marketplace topics can have a focus and support to focus on those particular issues. This was done, like I said, six years ago, and now it is more than relevant, extra relevant with what's going on today. Now, from the piece that was written, Why Race in the Marketplace, it was noted that some scholarship explores the essential role of race and racism in the conception and maturation of prominent present-day global markets, for example, banking, textiles, soft commodity markets, and they're deeply rooted in racially charged colonial and imperialist practices. Explain that to us. What that really says is that racism was at the root of the creation and the maintenance of the global markets we see today. Think about slavery and the role that free labor played in developing the cotton and sugar markets, for example, which are both large present-day global markets. At our first Race in the Marketplace conference, which was held in 2017 at American University, we took attendees to the Smithsonian African American Museum of Culture and History to see this in a material way. There are amazing exhibits on big sugar and big cotton that chart the role of free slave labor in the development of these worldwide markets in America and Europe that I would really encourage everyone to see that put a visual representation on that statement. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I've been to the museum about four or five times and that's not something that I ever saw or maybe should I say pay attention to. So I think it's a good point to bring about in visiting a museum like the National Museum of African American History and Culture and to find those things to further understand the whole premise of race and how it exists across the board. There was another thing that was cited in the piece, when the burger becomes halal. Why is this an issue? (laughs) When we wrote this paper, it was focusing on Quick, which is the most frequented burger chain in France after McDonald's. So they decided to serve halal meat exclusively at eight of its more than 350 French outlets. Their strategy was to replace non-halal beef and bacon with halal beef and smoked turkey. Well, a few months after they made this announcement, the mayor of a city in northern France in one of the locations of one of these eight halal quicks, as they called them, lodged a formal complaint against the chain for discrimination against non-Muslims by having this halal food. And there was a major social uproar that followed that really questioned the meaning of their strategy in light of France's emphasis on being a secular society. So what this really says is that you can try to focus on a particular niche who may have particular needs, but there also may be backlash to that, and that has an impact as well on both the strategy and the access and availability to what those groups want. Very interesting, because I would look at it with a different lens. So can this example be seen as a cross-cultural positive? In some ways, they did find that sales increased in these restaurants. Yet the backlash led them to offer non-halal options in addition to halal options so everyone can have what they want. 
But this also suggests the notion of privilege, which is the way we talked about it in the paper, because while halal meat can serve a niche market, it's not economically and politically viable substitute for the normal non-halal meat in these cases. So there's definitely value in having the halal meat for those who want it, perhaps even bringing more diverse tourists to those areas. And that may provide a cross-cultural understanding to tourists. However, at the same time, this example shows how race, or in this case racialization of a group, results in backlash from the main market who takes the privileged view that we should have what we want to have. Right, and it's, uh, again, It goes back to tourists can support these longer-term residents by supporting the products and services that are targeted to those longer-term residents or to a niche in a particular area because otherwise these products and services might go away. Travelers today, I think, are looking for more ways to have a more culturally immersive experience. So how can we do this and be conscious of our impact? You know, I think about the work I've done on diversity seekers, which relates to people who are interested in other cultures and take specific actions to learn about or immerse themselves in other cultures. So a big part is investigating neighborhoods and areas beyond the mainstream narrative. You might look at social media and see the popular restaurants or local events that might not appear in a guidebook or in the mainstream newspaper. You might have to seek out the independent newspaper to find ways to engage with local people in ways that will support the neighborhood and that will support the people who've been there for a while. Perhaps you could spend time at a local community center to learn about specific aspects. And I think everyone has a role to play, not only tourists, but also the proprietors of commercial establishments and local officials as well. What can those neighborhoods do to deal with the tourism and consumer gentrification that they are now having to deal with? I think that's also an issue in terms of people coming together and identifying strategies so that the community itself can benefit. You know, not only the collective self-esteem that I mentioned, when your neighborhood becomes a target, it says, you know, my neighborhood is valuable. People want to come here. People want to stay here. That's a big piece of it, but also tangible material ways that community members can come together and find ways to interact or work with tourists to support the community are needed. And I think that's going to vary based on each community. You have me thinking a lot about my own travel. And I think about, for example, if I go to Cuba and I stay in, you know, a Airbnb and housing in the neighborhood, I'm trying to fit into that neighborhood and understand and patronize the local places that are there and talk to the people that are there and ask them, you know, what are the restaurants I might go to and those types of things. And being very particular about not looking for people who look just like me about looking for people who live there, people who aren't necessarily visiting, because that's also a piece is that you see tourists kind of congregate together and not necessarily interact with the people in the neighborhoods or their tourist location. And through this consumerism, as was stated earlier, that commodity markets are deeply rooted in racially charged colonial and imperialist practices, how do those neighborhoods apply that to benefit themselves in the whole scheme of things. I think about, for example, in our movie, if you know U Street, you may have seen Busboys and Poets. Yes. And Busboys and Poets kept coming up in the movie as some place that everyone could go. But it was the only place that kept coming up as a place where everyone could go. So there is something in that strategy that made everyone perceive that they were welcome there 
And it turns out that they worked with the neighborhood in developing the place. And so businesses that come in will want to work with the community members so that it serves not just a segment of the community, but the whole community. I That's see. one specific example of the ways neighborhoods and neighbors may want to get engaged as they see their area changing. I see. So keeping yourself and what is going to attract people to your neighborhood is that cultural experience, but utilizing the strategies of colonial and imperialist practices that will work commercially. Right. Thinking about marketing from a much more inclusive perspective, and that goes back to your asking about race in the marketplace. We have thought about race in very limited ways in research, and I think that has an impact on the way practitioners develop these types of strategies in the neighborhood. We've thought about race in terms of culture. There are these cultural differences. But we see that racism has a huge impact on these relations and interracial interactions. We need to really think about the role of racism in neighborhoods as we develop new entities and services and products. You can't develop marketing strategies, those kinds of strategies you're talking about, without looking at the reality in the marketplace. And the reality is that You know, when a black person goes and rents an Airbnb in a neighborhood, they may have a different experience than someone of a different color in that same Airbnb because of racial market dynamics. We've seen that. We've seen people had the police called on them in Airbnbs in certain neighborhoods. Yes. Those are the realities of the marketplace that we have to think about when we develop these strategies. So how can one connect with you and get your work, both the piece on dog parks and coffee shops, faux diversity and consumption in gentrifying neighborhoods, and also race in the marketplace, crossing critical boundaries? Well, I have a website, Sonia Greer. Uh, If you just Google my name, it will come up. And then we have a website for the race in the marketplace, which is rimnetwork.net, R-I-M network.net. And Anyone can actually Google and email me if you like, and I'm happy to share my research. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you. Well, that's it for the show today. Wherever you go, go with all your heart. Confucius. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information.